0: Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no degrees in any of the topics I talk about. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you could do for me is to let me know. You can do that at living through extinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out. So listener discretion is advised. This is episode 81 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find cool that I want to learn more about. Today I'll talk a bit about how musk fans really need to wake up, how silicone anti-fouling paint could save marine life from metal poisoning, the first living 3D printed ear implant, and daylight saving time. All the possible ways to support the show are listed after the final segment and thank yous. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. So for a while now, Elon Musk has been showing his idiotic right-wing side and spreading bullshit conspiracy theories. He's shown his colors. He is garbage. Musk joined in on the spread of lies about the man who attacked Pelosi's husband with a hammer. Wow. And then the shit about Yul Roth? Jesus Christ, how did any of us ever think this guy had good in him? Yule is a former employee of Musk's. He happens to be gay. Musk made a severely and deliberately dishonest tweet about this poor man that the bigots have latched onto, and now this innocent individual is being harassed. What Musk did was tweet, quote, Looks like Yule is arguing in favor of children being able to access adult internet services in his PhD thesis. Unquote. Along with this tweet, Musk provided an image of a teeny tiny portion of this thesis in order to make it appear that what he was saying was legit. Before buying into this shit, these things are accessible. Go to the thesis and read it for yourself. He did not provide a link to the full thing for a reason. If someone were to go to the paper itself and find the portion that Musk posted, they would see how out of context it all really is. What the thesis actually explored was if companies like Grindr should create separate services for younger queer individuals so they could meet each other. What this came from is the fact that while Grindr is supposed to be adult only, gay kids are still on it. They don't have a lot of places to meet other queer individuals, so they lie about their age and they do get onto Grindr. As much as Grindr may try to keep everyone on their services 18 and over, there are plenty of people under 18 on this and services like it. Keeping them out has failed. The thesis explored how things might be different if Grindr would have put out a different app for queer youth to meet each other. The point would be to protect them from what they may encounter on the very adult site that they currently run, but still provide them with what most of the youth who sign on are really searching for, community. Musk perpetrated this atrocious lie, which brought on all sorts of hate for the thesis writer with zero evidence of what he was saying. In the end, it's turned out to be completely untrue. Not just untrue, but about as huge a misinterpretation as one can make. This was deliberate, and it was harmful. And this defaming of people like this isn't the only issue, though it should be enough. Mis and disinformation are topics I'm passionate about. Since Musk took over Twitter, climate mis and disinformation grows more every day. Right there, we have a huge disservice to humanity. Fanboys have got to face the fact that he is now a part of the problem. He also ended the COVID misinformation policy that used to be in place, so that too is now growing again and costing lives as it does. He even tweeted out that Fauci should be prosecuted. What the fuck, man? What happened to you? Who the fuck hurt you? Since he took over Twitter, almost all of the content moderation and public policy employees were either fired or walked out on their own. Europe has warned Musk that he's at the top of their watch list as he's created a haven for free speech absolutists, even when they call for violence. When Germany's digital minister met with Musk, he expected him to be a part of the fight against disinformation. Musk obviously burned that bridge. And again, here we are with the greatest world shift that ever occurred in a hundred year period. Germany is fighting against disinformation and propaganda, and the U.S. is all about it. In regards to Twitter's change of policy with disinformation, the French digital minister is quoted as saying, another milestone is reached in irresponsibility. If you think free speech has no limits in a free society, you are very wrong. It's always had limits. Just like your freedom to wave your fists around ends when they come in contact with someone's face, free speech ends when you falsely yell fire in a crowded theater and people get crushed to death in the mayhem as they try to race out you can absolutely be charged with some speech. Alex Jones was charged with his ridiculous claims about the victims of the Sandy Hook tragedy because he ruined lives. He encouraged his followers to harass parents who had just lost their children and call them liars. People had to pick up their lives and move some more than once because he has dumbass followers all over the fucking US. That is speech that causes harm. There is no reason for that to be allowed. Freedom does not mean getting to do whatever the fuck you want. That's childish. Nothing is black and white. All freedoms should have limitations. If you were a fanboy of this ass, please speak up against him as he shows his true colors. Nobody who practices scientific skepticism can still be a fan of this monster. A skeptic has no golden calves. It doesn't matter how much we may at one time admire someone. If they show themselves to be rotten, we just have to accept it. That's called being skeptical, damn it. An interesting environmental issue is the paint of a ship's hull. If not treated with an anti-fouling paint, they become burdened with the kind of marine organisms that tend to attach themselves to submerged surfaces. This is unwanted because to be the most efficient, the hull needs to be perfectly smooth. When friction or drag is increased, fuel consumption goes up with it. Anti-fouling paints are used to deter marine organisms from settling on the hull's surface. The problem with this is that the great majority of anti-fouling paints used contain copper. Copper is a biocide and quite harmful to marine life which is kind of how it works. They don't settle because the paint is poisonous to them. But these paints are also releasing copper and other heavy toxic metals into the sea. One study from September of 2022 found that 40% of the copper pollution in the Baltic Sea region comes from anti-fouling paints on ships and boats. But they really do need to keep those hulls clear, so what can they do? Well... A research team from the Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden has discovered that using a silicone based anti fouling coating could be the answer. Material sciences, baby. What they are talking about is a foul release coating rather than an anti fouling coating. First of all, the fouling, as it's called, has a hard time adhering to the slick, smooth surface. Secondly, when a ship begins to move through the water, the movement itself sloughs off any organisms that may have managed to grab hold. This is a material that could save marine life from metal poisoning. The Baltic Sea is actually classified as PSSA, particularly sensitive sea area, by the International Maritime Organization, so the less metals leaching into these waters, the better. Next, to get it on some different boats and ships and test it out in action, it would be nice to see copper-based anti-fouling paints on ships no longer be the norm. I should have started the month with this one, but it's still March, so I'm going to talk a bit about Daylight Saving Time. This is the name we have given to the process of advancing clocks during the nicer, longer days of the year in order to have daylight later into the evening. While not generally practiced in Asia, Africa, Latin America, or the Caribbean, over the last century it spread to nations all around the world. The first known mention of the idea was in a satirical letter to the editor of the Journal of Paris written by Benjamin Franklin in 1784. In it, he proposed aligning our waking hours to the daylight hours in order to conserve candles. It's not taken seriously and doesn't come up again until 1895 in New Zealand. George Hudson, an entomologist and astronomer, suggested the idea of a two-hour change every spring to the Wellington Philosophical Society. In 1907, a British resident brought up the idea as a way to save energy, and while this time the proposal actually received some consideration, it never was implemented. At this point, based on how people were now living their day-to-day lives, the topic started to come up more and more, and in more and more nations. In 1908, Port Arthur in Ontario, Canada, started using DST. In 1916, the German Empire and Austria organized it throughout their lands, and on it spread to other industrialized nations. During the war, the U.S. finally realized that they too could save on coal and implemented it as well. But, after the war, the farmers and working class spoke up against the whole idea. They protested that it only benefited office workers and the leisure class. It was the opposition from the dairy farmers, however, that got the government's attention, and it was ended in 1920. During the seven months in effect, at least 28 bills had been introduced to Congress to repeal it. So, very unpopular over there. But then 1941 came along, and the U.S. was back at war. The idea of saving on fuel at this time was too big a draw, and DST was put back in place, but this time year-round. After the war, it became optional for states. And then new problems arose with transportation, particularly trains at the time. Since there was no national legislation, each state had their own rules. Some states used it, some didn't. And those that did use it picked out their own dates for the start and finish. With transport from buses and trains becoming common at this time, the different times all over the place started to cause way too much confusion for travelers. So in 1966, Congress passed the Uniform Time Act. This meant that daylight saving time in the U.S. would have a standard. If a state practiced it, then the clocks would go ahead one hour the last Sunday of April and back again the last Sunday of October. In 1986, the U.S. moved their start date to the first Sunday in April. When Indiana joined in with daylight saving time in 2005, that made them the 48th state to do so. Today, places in the U.S. and Canada which participate put their clocks ahead on the second Sunday of March and back again on the first Sunday of November. This means we have a 23-hour day in the spring and a 25-hour day in the fall. In Canada, it's practiced everywhere except Saskatchewan, the Yukon, and this teeny tiny portion of eastern Quebec, which is weird. There are people for whom, and places for which, DST just doesn't make sense, of course. If located along the equator, for example, or at one of the poles, it wouldn't make any difference to people in those areas, so why mess with their time? Then there are people who actually live by the sun. Farmers, for example, who get up when the sun rises, and they see the time change as ridiculous. To them, it's like the native expression of cutting a chunk of rope off at one end and tying it to the other end. Nothing changes. I find it perfectly understandable that they regard it the way that they do. But I also understand why many 9-to-5ers prefer it. It gives them more daylight hours to enjoy in their evenings when they get off work. As much as people complain, I've known of people who moved to Saskatchewan where the time change does not occur, and they found themselves missing their longer evenings in Manitoba. Until they were in that situation, where it gets dark earlier in the summer months, they didn't realize how much nicer it was to be outside in the sunlight after work. What they once may have complained about, they now realize they had been better off with. Interesting tidbit. The U.S. came close to making DST permanent this year. In May of 2022, the Senate unanimously passed a bill that would have DST stay in place permanently when next implemented in 2023. After this, it should have landed on Biden's desk, but as of October, had still not been signed. If this had gone into effect, then daylight saving time would have been the new standard time in all but two states as of this year's change. Yeah, it sucks to reset my internal clock, but I do, and I appreciate those late evenings in my garden with actual sunlight. It may not be a popular opinion, but I actually like the idea of making DST permanent. Of just moving ahead one year and staying there for good. It would be nice to no longer see all those whiny complaining posts about how much everyone hates daylight saving time twice a year as well. I want us to do what the U.S. almost did. Just put it in place one day and make that the new standard. 1,500 people in the United States are born every year with a condition called microtia. The condition causes either one or both outer ears to either be underdeveloped or non-existent. Those who want cartilage transplants have to weigh the risks as the missing ear is not life-threatening, but transplanted cartilage and other materials are often rejected by the body, and that could be dangerous. But not when the cartilage is grown from the patient's own cells... The first 3D-printed implant, made from the patient's own living tissue, has been put in place and is doing great. The company that made the ear is called 3D Biotherapeutics. This patient had partial ear bits, so a biopsy was taken from what was there and the cartilage was harvested. It was then grown in a lab until they had enough to use in a printer. The required shape of cartilage was then printed out and implanted under the patient's prepped skin to form a finished, real, living outer ear. This takes away a lot of risk and hopefully can be applied to other parts of the body going forward. So we've pretty much conquered the ear. On episode 69, I talked about how the challenge of differentiating inner and outer ear hair cells has finally been conquered and is finally going to allow for hearing restoration after loss. And now the outer ear cartilage has been built out of a patient's own cells and we can deal with that too. Scientific progress is fucking amazing. That's it from me for March, unless you've subscribed to my YouTube, where I've been putting out very short weekly videos. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project three years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG, Suitcase Drummer, on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my family who puts up with me hiding in my bedroom, reading articles, making notes for hours at a time so I can do this podcast thing. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 82 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter and Hive. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingtoextinction@gmail.com, at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.